I'm John Perry, and this is Selected Pros. Hey, everybody. Great to have you back. Uh, before we jump into our episode with Gary L. Lutz, I just wanted to acknowledge the great loss to the literary community and the passing of Giancarlo de Trapano. I know he meant so much to so many people, and he brought attention to some really great authors whose voices were all better for having heard. Um, it's actually through Tyrant that I came to know and subsequently to love and adore and respect the work of Gary L. Lutz. And uh, for me personally, Giancarlo and, and Tyrant made me excited about contemporary literature in a way that I didn't really know it was possible, um, but yeah, just a, a huge loss, and uh, rest in peace, man. Two years ago, a good writer friend of mine told me to read this essay called The Sentence is a Lonely Place. Um, I read it. I read it again, and I won't discuss it here because Gary L. and I discuss the sentence and its lonely locale at length in the episode. Um, the only reason I bring this up really is, I guess because if you told me in 2019 that I'd be interviewing the author of that essay on a podcast, and I'd be interviewing the author of Stories in the Worst Way, or I Looked Alive, or Divorcer on my podcast, I would probably laugh and not believe you. Uh, but it occurred. Needless to say, I was as nervous uh, as I was honored. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. I learned a great deal. Talking with Gary L almost wires you in a in a new way in terms of how you think about language and craft. So take from it what you will. Um, before we begin, a very important note. Gary L just released her newest book titled Worsted a few days ago. It's available from SFLD press um, i have a link to that in the bio if you know anything about gariel you, you know she's one of the greatest american prose writers today and not much more really uh, can be or needs to be said than that so uh, by worsted lastly i, I want to mention that uh, in the run-up to this episode i'd been in touch with giancarlo about this episode and and potential episodes with other authors from tyrant Anyway, we decided to give 10% off of select Tyrant titles. Uh, more important than ever to support not only independent bookstores, but uh, Tyrant in particular. So just use the code SELECTEDPROS21, all one word. You can get the complete Gary Lutz. You can get Live Blog by Megan Boyle, The Sarah Book by Scott McClanahan, Preparation for the Next Life by Atticus Lish, and Under the Sea by Mark Leidner. All right, that's that. Without further ado, Gary L. Lutz. Hi. Gary L.? Yeah. Welcome. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, how's, how's everything? Um, pretty good, yeah. How are you? Good. Where are you, where, are you, uh, where are you zooming in from? Greensburg, Pennsylvania. It's metropolitan Pittsburgh. Okay. I have been... Going through your your short stories uh, over the last month, and I'm just you know uh, 
blown away. So it's it's real really an honor to have you on the show. And um, you know, I was uh, I started with stories in the worst way, which I'd love to ask you about. Kind of, you know, where 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 you started and like where your writing career kind of began. I went to graduate school for a creative writing program, but I didn't do very well in it. <laughs> I I couldn't deliver what the other people wanted. So I got kind of discouraged after I left college, after I left graduate school, I pretty much stopped writing for probably close to a decade. And then while browsing through some bookstores, I kept coming upon remaindered books that um, a certain number of remaindered books that stimulated me in a lot of ways. And they, it, it turned out they were, they were all edited by the same person, Gordon Lish. Mm. So I also noticed that he was publishing a literary journal called The Quarterly. And I was inspired by that because the writers in there were violating a lot of the things that I had been taught in graduate school. So I felt a little bit emboldened by that. And I began submitting work to, to that magazine, to that journal, and most of it was accepted. And as a consequence of that, uh, Gordon Lish was also an editor at the publishing house of Alfred A. Knopf. So he offered me a book contract. So I started writing a lot during that period. And that's how that first book came into existence. Mm. And what was it about Gordon Lish, at least in the beginning, that kind of like drew your attention? Primarily, I think it was his extreme attention to the individual sentence, mm -hmm. which I had never really encountered before or anybody. I hadn't encountered anybody speaking to that or, or talking about the sentence as a, as a unit or an object unto itself. Mm -hmm. So that, that inspired me to devote more time to these individual units of expression. Whereas and, in graduate, oh, I'm sorry. No, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, in graduate school, the emphasis was, uh, uh, was on plot, character development, dialogue, pacing, uh, setting, things like that. And those, for some reason, never really appealed to me. I can tell with, with your work, um, last night even, I was just opening up uh, uh, The Complete from, from Tyrant. And, uh, I, I, you know, I was just every, I noticed that every first sentence, <laughs> if you don't mind me just reading one that I particularly li like out of slops, it's uh, because I had colitis, I divided much of my between class time among 17 carefully chosen faculty restrooms, never following the same itinerary two days in a row, using a pocket notebook to keep track. So I guess I just kind of wanted to talk to you about, it's a very vague question, but it's like, how do you approach the sentence? You know, how do you, I guess I was just like, what's your secret? <laughs> I'm not sure I really have any kind of secret, but typically a sentence begins with an individual word and then other words simply emerge from that, that initial uh, word. This is a principle that Gordon talked a lot about. Uh, it's called consecution, whereby, um, you arrange one word on the page or the screen, and then other words will sort of extrude themselves from that initial word. And I guess what was so enlightening for me was how I saw other writers uh, doing this. For example, the very first sentence in Sam Lipsight's collection, Venus Drive, is you could touch for a couple of bucks. 
it was about a man, a young man being in a peep show type place. And I was struck by how another writer could have written the same thing by saying, um, for, for two bucks, you could, you could um, get a feel. For two bucks, you could get a feel. Now, what I learned from Gordon's work, even before I started taking classes with him, is that the words in a sentence obviously have to be grammatically related or syntactically related, but there has to be more to it than that. So there can be all sorts of other relations such as acoustical relations. So, I mean, you can look at a sentence like, um, for two bucks, you could get a feel. I mean, you can analyze it grammatically as starting off with a prepositional phrase uh, for two bucks, and then you know the subject, the pronominal subject, you, and then the auxiliary verb could, and uh, the main verb, get and then the direct object feel but that's all there is i mean mm -hmm. those those words otherwise don't seem to be related at least to me but in lipside's uh, sentence you could touch for a couple of bucks the sentence is uh, soaked in that uh sound touch mm -hmm. uh, couple and, and and bucks and i began to notice things like that in virtually all the writers i really admire uh, for example christine scott another uh writer whose work i worship uh she has a sentence in the story that goes something like, um, um, he knew the kind of Kleenex crud a crying girl left behind. And there's so much going on in there. Uh, first of all, the K sounds and uh, kinds and Kleenex and crud and crying, mm -hmm. even the CR sound in crying and crud. Uh, and then the L's in the Kleenex and girl and left and the, uh, the D sounds at the ends of words like kind and um, crud and behind, there's, there's so much artistry in a single sentence by Christine Scott that you can stare into it or gaze into it for a long time and, and continue to discern all sorts of patterns. And so that's the sort of sentence I want to read. I mean, I think a lot of the sentences that I encounter these days almost seem like sentences you would find in a magazine feature article. Mm. They are deli they're delivering content but they're not creating the kind of art that I look to, I look for when, when, I'm, when I'm reading. Mm -hmm. So I, I like sentences that really slow me down, that I have to reread and reread and reread to explore their inner workings, their innards and everything. That's, that's what appeals to me. Yeah, and, and to what extent when you're writing, um, are you thinking about it being read aloud or are you reading it aloud? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't generally read my own sentences aloud, but I can sort of hear them in my head. So... So you took a decade off of writing and, and you came back and um, stories in the worst way. So what happened, what happened next for you, like in your, in your writing career? Uh, after stories in the worst way, I started quitting writing again. <laughs> so it took me a while to, to begin. Although I should say that what I've discovered in the past couple of years is that during the 10 years when I quit writing after graduate school, I actually was writing. Mm-hmm. But it was, I would come home from work and I would, this was in the days of typewriters. I would put a sheet of paper into the typewriter and I would simply write about my day. But these mm -hmm. were not introspective writings. I would generally recount weird things I'd heard people say mm. or weird things I saw. But because this wasn't officially a journal and these would be this loose pieces of paper, I didn't have any sense of how much of this I was accreting or accumulating. So when I moved from one apartment to another about 20 years ago, I packed up just a lot of papers into boxes and then sealed the boxes. And a couple of summers ago, I just opened those boxes and found all these pieces of paper 
that I had written when I thought I wasn't writing. And also when I was in graduate school, even though the work that I was producing for classes was not uh, met with any kind of approval, I was writing extremely long letters. Mm. And an old friend of mine who I'd fallen out of touch with got in touch with me about a year ago and said, you know, I've got all these letters and he sent them to me. And one letter was over 30 single page type pages long. So what I did was I started typing up excerpts from these things and they amount to kind of like a, a memoir. So that's what I've been working on lately. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that during periods when I thought I wasn't writing, I was writing, but it wasn't writing that I thought was aimed at anybody other than the recipients of letters or faxes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So have you been, you know, first of all, how are things during quarantine? Like, have you been up in Pennsylvania the whole time? And second, have you been, you know, kind of recording your experience? Have you been writing letters to anybody or to yourself? Yeah, I've actually started keeping a journal because I think like a lot of other people, my concentration has been weakened or diminished somehow. Uh, I haven't been reading a whole lot. I mean, mm -hmm. I try to read, but I, ne I never seem to stick with anything for very long. So yeah, there are some days when I'll simply sit down and I'll start typing up things that I encounter on my walks and things that I'm thinking or observing. Where are your walks? Are you by like a park or just through the neighborhood? Uh, yeah, it's a pretty grungy small town, mm. about 34 miles outside of Pittsburgh. And this is not a walking town, so I don't really encounter many people. And I feel sort of overexposed or overvisible on the sidewalks of this town because walking is not really much an activity, except for people walking dogs, that sort of thing. So yeah, I notice little things and... Um, I guess they feed into what I later write. In reading your stories, I think, you know, you know, the turns of phrase and the sentences themselves are inherently compelling. But do you find, you know, how do you feel about like writing about setting? Um, is the place you're at now something that you think will like work its way into your writing or is it? Uh, I don't think that the places where I live ever show up in the fiction that I write, uh, but they do in the journal type writing. I mean, I think the only thing in any of my books that comes from an actual place is the very ending of the very first story in my first book it's called sororally and it has to do with um the narrator uh trying to get into a restroom at a restaurant and that was actually based on, on an actual door that i encountered in a deli long a long gone deli i think it was called rich's deli mm. in pittsburgh because to get in you had a you had to open one door and then as soon as you got in there was another door to open but to get into that second door you had to you had to open the first door again and that somehow took on a kind of metaphorical <laughs> significance to me so i put that at the end of the story but i believe that's the only thing in any of my stories that is actually based upon an actual place yeah i, I th that's kind of why i asked it was just like it's interesting where your narrators and your stories exist it's kind of you, you feel that they're in a place, but it's never, it's never central. Yeah, it's sort of like an every place or a no place. Yeah, it's one of those uh, graduate school things, I think, where people would be like, I, you know, I, I, I'd like for you to um, <laughs> tell us where we are, and I want to know what the room smells like and stuff, and that's kind of, that's kind of avoided. Yeah, I noticed that locally, um, there, there's a lot of writer, there are a lot of writers in the Pacific area, and there are a lot of place names, that sort of thing, in, mm -hmm. in their work. For some reason, that has never really seemed to me to be something I want to work with. So starting with, you know, you began with stories in the worst way. And then, so I looked alive was your next collection. And is there, was there any sort of like progress that you felt you made from one to the next? Or were you, you know, were you just like, 
you're like, I'm going to try something new with, with I Looked Alive, and, or, or are they just kind of... Yeah, I think it's more the latter because after my first book came out, as I mentioned before, I quit writing for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's difficult to motivate myself to write anything, partly because of the reception that the book got. And I just thought, what's the point of continuing with anything like this? So, well, what do you what do you mean by the reception that that are you talking about stories in the worst way? Yeah. Yeah. So what was what was that experience like, or, or what, what what was the reception like? Uh, a lot of it was negative. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, the book didn't get a lot of attention, and much of the attention it got was uh, unapproving or disapproving. Uh, it seemed as if people didn't really know what to make out of, make of the book. So I was discouraged by that, and I thought, why am I even bothering with this? Why should I spend time doing this sort of thing? Hmm. So the stories in my second book, I Looked Alive, came about partly because a few people were asking me for stories. So I, I, I tried to write something, and what I discovered as I was writing was that I think in the second book, well, first of all, the stories got longer for the most part. Secondly, I found myself more deliberately or intentionally using strategies that Gordon Lish had talked about in his classes because I, I started taking his classes in the early 1990s. And, and was that in New York or, or where was that? You no, know, you know, he primarily taught in New York, but during the summer, he would sort of take his act on the road. Mm, and okay. I took, I think it was five summers, I took a class in Bloomington, Indiana. He somehow got permission to teach in a classroom on the campus of Indiana University. Mm. And these were one week classes. So in other words, five days, and the classes were very long without any kind of breaks. I guess they were between six and eight, eight hours a day. Oh, wow. Yeah, just continuous talking. And it was amazing. I mean, it was just a life-changing experience for me because I, again, he would simply talk for that entire uh, stretch of time. Once in a while, he would ask somebody in the class to read a sentence, but he would frequently cut the student off put the sentence on the blackboard and then explain everything that wasn't working in it. So he spent, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes or more speaking to what was going on or primarily what, what wasn't going on in an individual, individual sentence. So the strategies that he was explicitly discussing in that class were ones that I tried to employ more consciously when I was writing that second book. And, and what kind of, what, what were those strategies, if you don't mind sharing? Oh, it was primarily, um, well, the thing is about Gordon's classes is that they're pitched at such a lofty level. They're very, very abstract mm-hmm. that I think just about everybody takes away something a little bit different. And what I took away from the class was this preoccupation or this obsession with sound in sentences. Yeah. Yeah. So it was that contribution that I was talking about earlier. Um, now, contribution is not limited to acoustics, but that's what I got out of it because I don't have a... I don't have a mind that manages abstractions very easily. I don't have a philosophical bent at all to the way that I think, if I think at all. But I was able to employ, or I thought I was employing, what he was talking about, taking something from one word, carrying it forward into a, in the subsequent word, and then carrying forward from that subsequent word into what's going forward uh, as well. So I, I became aware of all these patterns that can come into, come into existence in a sentence. So I, I believe that I was doing that more deliberately with the second book and also aiming for a more expansive type of writing because many of the stories in my first book, almost all of them, are either very short or extremely short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one to two pages sometimes, and uh, yeah. which can be very refreshing. And there's so much happening in that short space. Um, so And so 
how was the how was your experience with the second book? And may I also ask, um, when you say you kind of took time off and you were working and stuff, uh, what did you do for work? Oh, I was a teacher for all okay. those years, an English teacher, but I was teaching composition. So I was teaching into this academic essay writing. I mean, there were a few occasions when I taught creative writing, but they were few and far between. Mm -hmm. So, and my my work, my job was very time consuming. Generally, it would be between 50 and 60 hours a week because of all the papers I had to grade. Oh, wow. So typically, I was too exhausted to even think about writing. I mean, most of the writing that I've done during my work life was during the summer. And it would take me a long time to sort of recover from the teaching year and get around to being able to devote blocks of time to my writing. Mm -hmm. So often it would just be a matter of maybe two and a half or three months a year when I was engaged in writing in any kind of immersive way. Yeah, yeah. Did you, uh, did you, do you still teach? No, I retired last year. Oh, congratulations. How's that been? Thanks. It's been, it's been great having yeah. all this time for myself. Yeah. Yeah. You got on Twitter. <laughs> I did. I did that, I guess in October, I think it was when I started Twitter, but I've tweeted only once so far. I yeah. I'm still waiting for, for, uh, some of your tweets. It's interesting. Like, I wonder, I would love to hear what you think about Twitter as a concept because I've heard people say, oh, like, yeah, whatever. It's a highly distracting and there's a lot of nonsense on it, but other people have said, you know, it taught me how to write a sentence. I mean, do you feel that as like a medium, it, it's, it almost seems perfect, uh, perfectly attuned to like your type of writing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm actually impressed with Twitter because I'd heard all sorts of bad things about it, but the bad things generally have to do with things other than people who are engaged in Twitter to discuss writing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that Twitter encourages people to, uh, to express themselves in a very concise way, to think very carefully about individual words. I mean, it's almost like it has uh, a lot of tweets have the rhythm or the cadence of a one-liner joke, mm -hmm. uh, which mm -hmm. has always appealed to me. So if you're forced to express yourself, I, I don't. I think the character limit was doubled a few years ago or something because. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, so the tweets are a little bit more expansive, but mm -hmm. I, I do find myself being on Twitter for long periods of time. I mean, maybe like a half hour at a time every day because there's so much interesting stuff going on. Uh, mm -hmm. Other writers who are discussing their uh, their working habits or what they accomplished that day or their little observations. I shouldn't say little ob observations because these are often profound observations mm -hmm. expressed in a very uh, small number of words. So yeah, I think that um, a lot of people could collect their tweets into books essentially. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's keeping you from uh, sending that for second tweet? I think it's that I'm not a very outgoing person. Um, I have very few conversations at all during during a typical week. Mm -hmm. I'm just not a very, I guess, a person given to disclosure, um, except in my journal. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I realized, especially looking at the journals from like the late 1970s, early 80s, some of the comments almost seem like tweets because they are very short and um, sort of self-contained. And it's the kind of writing I like to read sentences that are almost aphoristic or epigrammatic in the way they manage their content and the way they express something fundamental about human nature. You know, something else you mentioned, just how Twitter is set up a lot of the times is like a one-liner joke. Um, something I like to talk about and kind of like delve into as much as you know, comedians will say it's impossible to do is humor in writing. And I don't know if you agree, but I often find your writing to be 
very funny. And I wondered like what your relationship was with, with humor. Yeah, I think that the humor in my work is completely intentional. Uh, I like to be funny. I love reading funny things. And one of the things that struck me when the reviews of my first book came out is that they didn't, dis uh, many of the reviewers did not discern the humor in at all. Uh, I remember one review, a reviewer said that um, even chronically cheerful people will want to blow their brains out after reading this book. And I thought, which book are they reading? Because what jokes, I mean, they weren't jokes in the sense of um, uh, a setup and then a punchline at the end. But I thought there were lots of humorous observations in there. And I love to laugh. Mm -hmm. And many of my favorite writers are essentially humorous. I mean, a writer that virtually nobody even talks about anymore is S.J. Perelman, who uh, was writing through the 30s and 40s primarily. I mean, that's when I think his best work was. And he was a humorist, but it, it, was, very, uh, it was intricately verbal. I mean, some people, I remember one critic saying that um, his vocabulary rivals that of James Joyce. So there were a lot of obscure words and slang terms, et cetera, in his work. And he was a huge influence mm. on me. So yeah, I, I'm glad that you see the humor in my work because uh, I think a lot of my sentences have the cadence of a one-liner. Uh, it's just that it's not really a comedy routine sort of thing, but it's just um, an observation on life or people or the business of this getting through a day, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is like a type of dry kind of deadpan humor, but it's absolutely there. And that's that's surprising. I don't know. So what was, I know it's probably like a touchy subject, but it's, it's very surprising to me to hear that um, you received that kind of, first of all, that review about it being depressing or something. But um, can you kind of talk more about just like what, what that, what that feel like, what that feels like when, when someone is like misstating your work? Like, is it a strange feeling to not be able to like have a conversation with them and instead you're just reading the reviews that are off base? Yeah. It's, um, it's demoralizing for one thing, because I put a lot of work into that first book. I put a lot of work into all of my books and uh, things that critics were saying uh, were comments. Uh, I mean, for a time, I had a lot of those reviews memorized, and because I read them so many times, and mm -hmm. now my memory has sort of those memories have faded. But they were saying such things that the writing was weak, uh, it was wordy, and I wish I could remember. Well, actually, I'm glad that I don't remember. Yeah, that. no, me but, too. <laughs> uh, oh, I think they were saying that the book was completely dull banal and just uninteresting yeah that's dumb yeah do you feel though that like over time like this so the the, the complete gary lutz with tyrant is I, from what i understand is like doing great and and i know there are people here in, in new york who that's how i heard about you in the first place and um do you feel that maybe it's like people are catching catching on i think to an extent i think that word of my work spread sort of through word of mouth over the years. But I mean, even with the, the big book, the collected, the collected stories book, there were some negative reviews of that. And that's to be expected, I think, with any kind of writing these days. Mm -hmm. I think that my writing possibly gets under some people's skin and they want to lash out at it for one reason or another. Oh, what do you think about it? Like gets under their skin? How, I guess, severe it is. Um, for example, one reviewer said that my writing is all about sex. And mm. that struck me as kind of strange because I don't know if sex acts are ever once depicted in my work, uh, whereas some people do write a lot about sex and sex acts, that sort of thing. So that kind of, 
that kind of surprised me. Mm -hmm. What are you reading now? Anything good? I did read. There are some few. Uh, there are a few people who have books coming out that I'm really uh, that really love. There's a there's a writer named Greg Greg Gerke. Okay. Who's, he's a fiction writer and a um, an essayist, and he has a book coming out called See What I See What I See, and he's an amazing, extraordinary essay writer. So I've been rereading uh, that that book because he writes about literature and film and also his own life. But even in writing about film and literature, he's able to discuss his own life in a way that's very refreshing because mm. it's not, um, because lately there's been a uh, it seems that there's been a discussion among reviewers about whether a book reviewer, you know, writing a short book review should say anything about her own life. And often when reviewers are doing that sort of thing, it comes off as a little bit awkward, but mm -hmm. Bernie does something that's completely different. He's able to illuminate the works that he's writing about by relating them to his own experiences or discussing how his own experiences were illuminated by things that he's seeing on screen. Uh, for example, he has an essay about Eric Romero's movies, which I've been watching recently, mm. or rewatching recently. And he offers these original insights based upon his own experiences. So it's not as if his personal details are intrusive in any way. Instead, they're, they enlighten the reader's understanding of the, of the films themselves. So that book has really impressed me. And he also has a collection of short stories out called um, uh, Especially especially the Bad Things. And another work that I read recently that blew me away as well is a book that was just published, I guess, about a few weeks ago called mm. Something Gross by a writer who writes under the pseudonym Big Bruiser Dope Boy. Well, that book is amazing. What was it? What's it called? Something Gross? Yeah. It's, it's written in paragraphs that are just one sentence long and then there's a space between paragraphs and the writing has an extreme sense of immediacy mm. it's about a love it's about a romantic relationship and it's ups and downs and it just it just blew me away with how immediate it is mm. and how the sentences themselves they're obviously carefully worked but they have a kind of raw quality uh, a deliberate intentional raw quality so there's no dressing up, there's no embellishment or ornamentation in this writing at all. It's very spare and stark, mm -hmm. but it's extremely affecting. Uh, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking book in terms of its, uh, it, well, its expression and also the emotional states that it, uh, that it depicts. So that I really, I really love that book. And there's a, a book that came out, I think about a couple of years ago called uh, The Great American Suction by David Nutt. He's a real sentence artist. Mm, mm. Uh, and that was a book that was published by Tyrant. And I, I really love that book. And there's a writer who was active during the 1980s. His name is James Robeson. And um, he published a story collection and also a novel. And then this sort of disappeared for a while. But then the Mississippi Review, a couple of decades ago, devoted the whole issue to some new work of his. So I've been rereading that. Oh, okay. So most of the reading I'm doing is actually rereading, although I've been reading as well a number of uh, books about Andy Warhol. What sparked that? Uh... Well, I've been interested in him since I was a kid, since mm. I was in high school. He was a role model for me because he was somebody who was 
very expressive, but also inarticulate at the same time, because I was an extremely inarticulate kid. I grew up in a household where there weren't a lot of books. Well, there, there were very few books, as a matter of fact, and language was not a matter of interest. So it wasn't really until the summer after I graduated from high school that I realized I better learn how to use words. Mm. So I started reading Webster's, Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. So what impressed me about, about Warhol was that he made, he turned his inarticulate nature into a kind of advantage or a strength. So he's always been a big role model. Mm. And the big biography that came out last year, um, almost 900 pages long, I really, I really loved reading that. Who, uh, do, you, do you remember the title of that one? Uh, it was simply called Warhol, and it was by, the guy's last name is Gopnik, and now I, I think it was Adam Gopnik, maybe? Okay. Uh, I forget now. He's, he's, a, he's a brother of, oh, Adam Gopnik is the guy who writes for The New Yorker, but it's the brother of, of that guy. Is Blake Gopnik? Oh, Blake, yeah. Yeah, it's Blake. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, I definitely want to talk about Worsted, uh, <clears throat> which is coming out soon. But before I do that, like a friend of mine recently turned me on to Otessa Mashva. And I've noticed you seem to be a fan as well, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. She's she. So I just finished Eileen a couple of weeks ago. Oh, wow. Which I felt ha, she's just got such a such an amazing voice. But um, it seemed like you were excited about her like very early on. Like you kind of knew she was going to become who she became. Um, what did you, you know, what, what is it about her that, that, that kind of stood out to you? She got in contact with me. She got my address from Gordon Lish. I think, I think that's where she got it. And she wrote to me a few times and, uh, at some point we began emailing, but even when she was an undergraduate during her senior year at Barnard college, she was winning all sorts of reward, uh, awards for her writing. Mm. As an undergraduate, I, I guess she was a, a senior in college when she had a, a story accepted by Fence mag magazine. And I was impressed very early on with her work because, for example, the story that appeared in Fence, if I hadn't known who she was and how old she was, I would assume that that was a, a story written by somebody in late, uh, late old age, maybe yeah. in the 70s or, or 80s. She has an uncanny wisdom about human beings and the nature of life that struck me as not just extraordinary, but I, I mean, early on, I just thought she was a genius. I, I think she was the first genius I ever encountered in my life. I mean, Gordon Lish was the first one and she would, she would be the second one. I, I was dumbstruck mm -hmm. by her emails and the way she phrased things. And I was also dumbstruck or just impressed by her work ethic uh, that she plunges into her work. And from what I understand, that's what she does now as well. I mean, writing is her life. And I was so happy when I saw that she was getting attention. And now obviously she's a major, she's a major star mm -hmm. in, the, in the literary world. And yeah, Eileen amazed me and her, her first book, uh, McGlue, that was a stunner. I mean, all her work has mm -hmm. been a stunner. Her story collection and uh, my year of rest and relaxation. Yeah, her books are books to read and reread and just continually reimmerse yourself in. Yeah. Well, apparently she finished a, a draft of a new novel over <clears throat> over COVID. So. Oh wow, I hadn't known that. I had heard that through word of mouth, so that's something to look forward to for sure. Yeah.
But so, yes, yeah, so I want to talk about uh, your new collection that's coming out from uh, SFLD. And uh, it was a- April 9th? Well, I don't know if there's an exact okay. release date, but I know the book's coming out in April. Yeah, so what, uh, what was the genesis of <clears throat> this collection? If you could kind of put it in the uh, <clears throat> timeline of your career thus far. I guess this is the strangest one because when I mentioned earlier about finding all these boxes of old stuff, in those boxes were also printouts of discarded stories that I had started writing when I was working on stories in the worst way. Mm. So, uh, and in fact, when I first came upon these printouts on paper that had been printed on by a very weak dot matrix printer for this word processor that I was using when I wrote my first book, it's a, it wasn't a computer, it was a thing called an Am- Amstrad word processor sold only in the United States by Sears. And it was sort of like a junky thing that was my introduction to working with a keyboard other than a typewriter keyboard. So I had all these faint draft quality printouts and my initial reaction was to throw them out. And I'm glad I didn't because I think it was the next summer that I, I looked at them and I saw that here were stories that I had started writing and I simply abandoned because I thought there isn't time to finish these. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe I should try to use this material and work with it. So a lot of the stories in Worsted actually have their genesis and things that I was writing in the early and mid 1990s and also late 1990s. And as I returned to them, I saw that I was, I was sort of mixing the person I was in the 1990s with the person I am now. And that's pretty much how the book came into existence. I mean, in fact, there are with a couple of the stories in Worsted they consist almost entirely of sentences that were discarded from stories that actually ended up in stories in the worst way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I had read something in a long ago interview with Woody Allen, whose joke writing, whose one-liner abilities I, uh, I admired. And he said something about, if you're writing a comic essay, such as the type that he was writing at the time, he said, you can't have too many funny sentences in a row. So I was simply striking out lots of sentences from those stories. And when I looked at them, I thought, when I looked at them, uh, at them a, a summer or two ago, I thought, why, why did I cut those sentences? So I was able to build those sentences up into stories on their own. So that, that, was, that was how two stories in that Worsted collection came together. But for the others, I would take paragraphs or multi-paragraph passages and then work them further sometimes add traditional uh, transitional material and in some cases write entirely new paragraphs so i don't know what percentage of worsted is brand new i would say maybe i would estimate maybe 40 percent but even with the 60 percent that was based on material from the 1990s i had reworked it a lot although a lot of stuff appears in worsted exactly as it was in my drafts Mm -hmm. long ago and so what do you think is like, if you had to compare Worsted to the rest of your work, like what makes it, is it, is it like a departure? Is it, is it different because of that? Yeah, I think what happened was that working on this book, I decided that I would try to be less solipsistic mm. because there are stories in my earlier books that have struck some people as being completely incomprehensible. Over the years, well, there was somebody that remarked that my story should be translated into English. 
and <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it made me think. Well, maybe maybe my work is unintelligible, and maybe it's so solipsistic that it simply doesn't communicate. So in this new book, I was aiming for more clarity. Okay. I mean, not not absolute clarity because I love ambiguity, and I think there's still a lot of ambiguity in this book. But I didn't want this to be a book where somebody could point to it and say, this makes no sense whatsoever. I have no idea what this person's talking about mm -hmm. in, in these stories. But I do think that there are a couple, a couple of stories in there that could be dismissed as being completely, completely incomprehensible. But for the most part, I think, I think there's a more straightforward, a more direct quality to this book compared to a lot of my other stuff. I mean, I don't, as a reader, I don't mind solipsistic stuff. I don't, I don't approach the reading that I do, especially the fiction reading that I do, with the, the expectation that I will understand what I'm reading. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've read some books backwards. I, I start with the last chapter and work my way for, uh, back to the beginning, or I've read some books sentence by sentence backwards. I mean, I would read each sentence from beginning to end, but I would read them backwards. Right, as right. Because I, don't, I don't really care about plot, even as a reader. I mean, I, some of the books that I've read, reread over and over again, I never remember the plots anyway. I mm -hmm. remember the sentences or the moods. So, um, and that's one of the reasons why my one attempt at teaching literature was a failure because I couldn't remember the plots. Even when I was teaching the books, I had a, I had to outline the entire book and it was so time consuming to do that. Even, even after I came up with the outline, I couldn't remember it anyway. So I had to keep looking at the outline. Remember this is come, this comes first. Then that, that. So cause and effect or, or progression plot wise is something that my neurology apparently cannot handle. Mm -hmm. I get the feeling sometimes that, you know, your work is basically like in a lot of ways, poetry. And it, I, am I, am I correct to imagine maybe some of your stories have been written where you start with a phrase that really caught your ear and then you build the story like around a single sentence. Yeah. Yeah. And actually when I started graduate school, I went in there expecting to learn how to write poetry, mm. but the, um, the professors hated my poetry even more so than my fiction. So uh, I gave up poetry, but I think I approached sentence writing in the way that I guess poets do, because yeah, it's words. You're making an arrangement of words. So you have to think carefully about each word. I remember the first biography of J.D. Salinger that came out, it was uh, obviously, um, uh, he didn't, uh, it was Ian, Ian Hamilton, a British writer who wrote this. And it was an unauthorized biography. Mm. Something in that book that amazed me and still strikes me. Somehow, Ian Hamilton was able to learn that after Salinger had stopped publishing and was still writing, but not, not publishing his work, that what he would do as he was writing a sentence, there would often be a blank in a sentence that had to be filled with a word. And he would spend an entire afternoon coming up with all the possible words that could fit into that particular slot in the sentence. And but that impressed me because I thought that's what writers are supposed to do because Susan Sontag in her essay called, um, what's an essay about the prose of poets. She says that writers have to aim for what she calls lex lexical inevitability. And that phrase lexical inevitability has stuck with me over the years because I thought that's what writing is all about. That you have to work on a sentence to the point where it seems as if that sentence has already existed, mm -hmm. that it's inevitable that the sentence would exist. And I know that some writers say that writing is a procedure of rejection. You're rejecting this word, you're rejecting that word, 
you keep rejecting words until you find the one that is inevitable for that position in a, in a sentence. And that's what I try to do in my work. So uh, it takes, often takes me a long time to fill a slot in a sentence. Then all of a sudden the word will occur to me and it might be some very, very ordinary word, but it never, it never had previously occurred to me that it could take that particular position in, in a sentence. Mm. Seems like a daunting exercise. I can imagine J.D. Salinger pacing about <laughs> in frustration, trying to, trying to fill in the blank. Yeah, because um, I think that a lot of writers, or I, should, I should say some writers, are pleased too early on, pleased too early on with a word that they have chosen and have not thought about how it relates, how that word relates to the words before it, the words coming after it, et cetera. And the writers that I mentioned earlier, like you know Sam Lipsine and Christine Scott, I can tell that they're extraordinarily attentive to every single word that they allow to enter a mm -hmm. sentence. What's your, so are you somebody who edits uh, as you go or what's your editing process? Uh... Yeah, I edit as I go because often during times when I devote maybe like a four or five hour block of time mm -hmm. to writing, I might come up with only a few sentences. So I'll keep re reworking those sentences. So I don't write sequentially. A lot of my stories came into existence based upon maybe a paragraph here, a paragraph there in, in long, long drafts. So I do edit as I proceed. I never, I've never written a story, but well, actually there is one exception to this. In this new book, there's a, a brief passage toward the end of a story that's composed of little fragments. It has to do with a woman who is fed up with being asked if she works in stores that she's walking through. Uh, so that's a that's a funny premise well that story came to exist i mean that came into existence virtually whole i just simply sat down and wrote a draft of that and then i reworked the draft so that's that's the one exception to that mm. and i wasn't even sure about whether i should include that in the book i i i inserted it pretty much at the last minute because it seemed to be a lot different from everything else well i want to talk about um i guess publishing in general. So, you know, your collection, your, your collected work came out with Tyrant and this is coming out with SFLD, which is, which is Hobart. And a lot of the people that, a lot of the people that like I've interviewed over the last couple months, I guess you could place them in this like indie lit scene. I, I'm sure you're familiar with the term, but yeah. are you kind of, do you kind of get a, get a sense with like Hobart and, and, you know, 3am and stuff that there's this kind of new movement? Yeah, I think what impresses me especially is that this is their lives this is what they want to do and as opposed to commercial publishers where the editors don't really they don't invest their own money in this the people running these indie presses they're they're demonstrating through their financial commitment to publish a book that they seriously believe in the work that you're doing mm -hmm. so yeah i'm very impressed with that because Obviously, I would assume that these people are not, they don't have huge profits from these books, but they care so much about these books. So yeah, Elizabeth Allen at um, uh, Short Flight, Long Drive Books is, is terrific. And uh, she edited this book very carefully, several times. She, her life is just devoted to, to writing her own work and publishing other writers. So she's, she's a great role model. Uh, and um, yeah, I agree with what you're saying that writers, well, I guess the way I think about this is that in the past, 
the sense was that if you're not affiliated with a major press, nobody's ever going to find your work. Whereas it seems these days, it doesn't matter that you're not affiliated with one of the big fiber. I think that, especially because of the internet, because of Twitter and everything else, uh, writers or readers who are interested in reading something unusual will be able to find these books these days. So, I mean, I had the, an opportunity with my collected stories book to be published by one of the majors. And I was going to pursue that until they told me that the publishers on my previous books would have to stop reprinting them. This was sort of sprung on me kind of abruptly after discussions I'd had with this particular publishing house that yes, the, um, the, little, indie, the little indie presses, uh, Calamari Press, and um, Future Tense Books and uh, Black Square Editions could no longer reprint these books mm -hmm. and would have to remove them. They would have to be removed from the shelves of bookstores after a certain time. And that I, I, I simply couldn't go forward with that. Yeah, yeah. These little presses, this is their own money. This is their own work. This is their own life. And it would really be a slap in the face, a complete betrayal of those of those publishers. So I went with Tyrant, and at the very outset, I asked uh, Giancarlo uh, what the fate of the previous edition would be, and he says he didn't. Uh, they could keep publishing forever. Mm, so mm. he was he was very gracious about uh, the way in which he was dealing with me. About, I mean, he's a great person overall, uh, and so I was I was pleased that the previous publishers can continue to reprint those books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That seems like a very stringent and like unfortunate <laughs> and capitalistic requirement. Um, yeah. Well, it's really exciting. I think, you know, um, for a lot of us who are aspiring to write and aspiring to write well, reading, reading your work is, is uh, essential. And it's, it's been, you know, a hugely uh, enjoyable experience for, for me to start delving in and I'm, I'm extremely excited about worsted and, and, uh, to keep getting, getting myself, uh, caught up with, with what you've done so far. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, I really, I really appreciate you coming on and everything. And, and, uh, it was wonderful to talk. Thanks. It was a pleasure for me as well. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, I learned a lot and it was uh, wonderful to speak with you. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Th thanks very much. All right. Thank you. Bye. Hope you enjoyed our latest episode with Gary Hill. Next week, I'm talking to Grammy-nominated musician Courtney Marie Andrews. She's just released a book of poetry called Old Monarch, uh, which I loved our discussion about that and, and much, much more coming to you next week. Until then... Enjoy yourselves and be well.